2: We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: We are here at the University of Alabama. We are here in Tuscaloosa.
4: So exciting! I gotta say, it is great. To be back in America. <laughs> it is.
3: it is. We've been in hostile territory on this tour. We are back in good old America. There's only one thing I'm more excited about. I just got a text from a friend of mine. This happened about an hour ago. I'm just going to read the text out. Wow, I'm mid-flight on, on my way from Newark to Salt Lake City, and they just announced on the airplane speaker that masks are no longer required. Everyone (laughs) cheered. There's a shot we might get freedom back. This is Burdick with Ted Cruz.
5: Today's episode of Verdict with Ted Cruz is brought to you by IP Vanish. Did you know that browsing online using incognito mode doesn't actually protect your privacy? Without added security, you might as well give all your private data away to hackers, advertisers, your internet service provider, and who knows who else. IPVanish helps you securely and privately browse the internet by encrypting 100% of your data. This means that your private messages, passwords, emails, browsing history, and other information will be completely protected from falling into the wrong hands. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. It's that simple. Just for verdict listeners, IPVanish is offering an insane 70% off their annual plan. That's like getting nine months for free. You have to go directly to IPVanish.com cactus to get this 70% off discount. IP Vanish is super easy to use. Just tap one button and you're instantly protected. You won't even know it's on. You can use IP Vanish on your computers, tablets, and phones, whether you're at home or in public. Don't go online without using IP Vanish. Don't forget, Verdict listeners get 70% off the IP Vanish annual plan. Just go to ipvanish.com/cactus to claim your discount and secure your online life. That's ipvanish.com/cactus.
2: This episode of Verdict with Ted Cruz is brought to you by GenuCell. How old does your mirror say you are? You can delay this question by five, 10, even 15 years with GenuCell's new ultra retinol serum. You can, you know, see it sitting right here on the desk. Here's a testimonial from Marina. Marina lives in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. She says, great product, my skin loves it. I have spent more money, she says, on creams over the years, enough to pay off my house. Just kidding but it feels like that. This product has changed my life like no other. Now, Marina is flying high with GeniaCell's new ultra retinal serum with hyaluronic acid. Um, this works to hydrate your skin at the cellular level. It builds on this deep moisture with incredible anti-wrinkle effects. And gentlemen, you know that we ladies, we wives use your razors in the bathroom when you are not looking. Likewise, we know that you use our face products, our skincare products. And it's fun. All's fair in love and war. <laughs> now, if you go to my URL, that is genucel.com slash cactus, you can get up to 50% off Genucel's new ultra retinal serum. That is 50% off. If you go to genucel.com slash cactus, it's spelled G E N U C E L dot com slash cactus. Genucel.com slash cactus.
3: Senator, we so rarely get any good news as conservatives these days. It's been a pretty tough news cycle. This just broke a few hours ago. A federal judge, a Trump appointed federal judge, young judge who looks like she's going to have a great career, she just appears to have ended the CDC mask mandate for public transportation. It it, it is spectacular.
4: You know, I got to say, I flew this afternoon from Texas to Alabama, I'm pissed. She didn't issue a ruling this morning, (laughs) Few hours because I had to wear the bloody mask, flying here. Uh, What I love about that text, so Michael showed me that text right before we walked on, is is your buddy is a priest, (laughs) so you've literally got a priest on a plane texting you holy crap, we get to take our masks off. <laughs> he,
3: he actually followed it up. He said, the poor guy next to me is still asleep. Should I just take it off his face? I don't, that way you can breathe just fine. Right. I'm glad you told him no on that one. <laughs> yeah, that's probably not. But, but this is actually, on the one hand, this is such great news. I'm so excited. I've got a flight coming up on Thursday. I can't wait to exercise my freedom. On the other hand... Is this what our country has come to, that we need to celebrate
4: being able to breathe without a muzzle on? I I mean, think how asinine this is. Two years ago, if someone would have suggested to everyone here that the government's going to step in and and make a rule that everyone has to wear a mask every damn moment of the day, that you can't get on an airplane, that you can't get on a train, you can't get in a bus, you can't get in an Uber without putting on a stupid mask. Nobody would have believed that. Yeah. I mean, it really is an interesting moment. You and I were sitting backstage going, why are we so damn happy? And, and to be honest, on some level, maybe the American people should have said to heck with this and collectively thrown our masks down. Yep. But the problem is on an airplane, they've got a power imbalance. If, if you did that yesterday and said to heck with this, I'm not going to wear a mask. They throw you off the plane. Yeah, and they did it to a lot of people. The,
3: the Navy SEAL who killed Osama bin Laden, you think that guy would get a lot of credit in America?
4: He'd be able to do kind of whatever he wants? They, they booted the, 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 him off the plane. I, it, it is, by the way, killing Osama bin Laden, that's, that's kind of a big deal. <laughs> you would think. Not enough to uh, let you ride mask-free, though. You know, it, it is not only that, but there was a big push to add to the no-fly list people thrown off planes for not wearing masks. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is a list that's designed for terrorists, for people that are, you know, actually want to hijack planes and fly them into buildings and murder people. We're now going to add the guy who shot Osama bin Laden, arguably, because if you failed to comply with this mandate, you were going to be banned. And the argument was not even just one airline, because some people say, well, they're a private company. No, what they were urging... The federal government to do is make it a no-fly list on any airline yeah that you were forbidden if you wanted to go to tuscaloosa any other place in the united states or across planet earth you better get a bicycle or a car or a truck or a boat because you weren't going to be able to fly and 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 that power imbalance is is i think dangerous
3: so I'll take the win however we can get it, I think. I, I, I don't want to let the perfect get in the way of the good. I don't want to clutch defeat from the jaws of victory like conservatives so often do. You know a fair bit about the law more than I do.
4: What was the argument here from the judge? So the argument, this is a district judge uh, in Florida, federal district judge, and it was a group of plaintiffs who, who brought a lawsuit. Uh, a couple of the plaintiffs. One said said that 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 they suffered anxiety from wearing a mask, and others said they weren't flying nearly as much because they didn't like wearing a mask, had trouble breathing, and the the Biden administration defended. And the argument was, does the CDC have the authority to issue this rule? I, I got to say, every time I was on a plane, I would hear the flight attendant come over o- over over the loudspeaker, and the flight attendant would say. Federal law requires you to wear your mask. And I'm sitting there going, wait a second, federal law. I seem to recall for something to be federal law, there being something in the Constitution about it passing the House, passing the Senate, being signed by the president, becoming, well, you know, federal law. If I'm not mistaken, Senator, you are a federal lawmaker. Is that right? And if that happened, I kind of missed it. (laughs) Because we didn't vote on it. We didn't have any federal law on it. What happened... Joe Biden issued an executive order. He got into the White House. He issued an order that said, I think a mask mandate is a hot diggity damn good idea. Those are his exact words. It, ending, right? it, it, yeah. well, he, invi- he invoked corn pop, too. I, <laughs> I, I don't know what it meant. Th- then he promptly turned to shake the hand of an imaginary rabbit that was next to him. <laughs> yes, he does. he does. By the way, the imaginary rabbit's right here. Good to see <laughs> you. <laughs> nice to see you. Um, two weeks later, the CDC, the bureaucrats at the CDC put out this new rule, except they said, uh-uh. It's not a rule because there's actually a federal law, the Administrative Procedures Act, that says if a federal agency wants to issue a rule, there's a way you issue a rule. And in particular, you put it up for notice and comment. In other words, the agency says, okay, this is a rule we're considering. The American people, you got 30 days to comment on us, to tell us, is it a good idea, is it a bad idea? You've gotta weigh the arguments, so you've gotta weigh the evidence. And, and, and the legal standard is that it can't be arbitrary or capricious. Hmm. And the federal district judge in this case has, has a very reasoned opinion uh, that goes through in detail examining the statutory language. Number one, there's a general statute that deals with health crises. And she says, look, that statute doesn't give these broad powers to impose, whether it's mask mandates or vaccine mandates. Or remember, the government before argued that That they had the power to impose an eviction moratorium to decree, if you happen to have a rental house, if you're renting out your garage apartment, you can't collect rent. Why? Because we decree it to be so, never mind the niceties of of passing a law subject to democratic accountability. And, And the district judge went through the statutory language, CDC admitted it hadn't done notice and comment. It said, well, it was an emergency. Because because they have the right,
3: according to the Administrative Procedures Act, to say, well, we have good cause yes. uh, to suspend these rules, because if we didn't suspend the rules, why
4: uh, mayhem would ensue, we, we would not be able to take care of this, this public emergency. Well, and one of the things the district court said is, look, this thing had been going on for over a year. COVID infections were going that down. If it was suddenly this... Oh, so crazy emergency. What happened the prior year? How did you suddenly discover it was an emergency then? Yeah. And, and so this decision, the end of the decision, uh, the district judge vacates the rule. So as we were sitting backstage getting ready for, for the show, we were talking about, okay, what does this mean? And like, I'm going to fly back to Texas tomorrow. And I'm like wondering, am I going to wear the stupid mask or not? I really hope the answer is no. And it was an interesting question. What is the Biden administration going to do? And one option is appeal, and they could still appeal. They, they probably will, but maybe not. Uh, another option, they could conceivably try to defy the court. Hmm. Uh, but that's a high-risk option because the end of the, the district court's order the district court vacates the rule. So when you vacate the rule, you essentially erase it. It doesn't exist. So because this was the question some
3: of my friends have been asking me. I think my friend who is 30,000 feet probably has answered it
4: practically to some degree. But usually when you talk about your friend 30,000 feet, you're talking about the good Lord. But in this case, <laughs> you're true. talking about a priest on an airplane. S-
3: slightly lower, I would say. That's right. <laughs> Though not unrelated. All right, there you go. So, so <laughs> But, but my friends will ask me, they'll say, okay, so the, the bureaucracy said this, and the judge said this, and so, look, I don't care about any of that. Do I have to wear the mask or not? You're saying the ruling actually does
4: erase the rule. So the rule is vacated. It, it, is, it has no force and effect. But the next question was going to be, what are the airlines going to say? Hmm. Because the airlines are still private companies, they could, in theory, say, we're going to require a mask, even though the federal law doesn't require it. Remember, we had a mask mandate before that. Early on in COVID, a lot of us flew and you wore masks. There wasn't any federal law. They didn't say federal law required it. It's just the airlines wanted to get people to come on planes. And they said, all right, let's put this rule in place because people are scared. It'll let them come on. So conceivably, the airlines could have said, we're going to keep this rule in place, But it's interesting that the the debate on this has shifted. So early on, the most vigorous advocates for this rule were the flight attendants union. Mm. The union of flight attendants were pushing for it, concerned about safety. That's now shifted. I think a lot of flight attendants are annoyed at being mask police. Their whole job is particularly... Have you noticed the flight attendant that's so uptight that that literally is between sips? You know, you put your Diet Coke down. No, nope, put your mask on. The not only do you use, and this is I, I find this is the rarity. Usually the flight
3: attendants have been very nice about yeah, it. Most of them mask, know it's ridiculous. But but that distinct minority. Oh,
4: There's one or two that take it very take it seriously. And
3: I should point out, Senator, by the way, you are somewhat responsible for this. I'll just call you out right on stage. You were coming out to visit. Back when we were in L.A., you were coming out to visit. We were going to film some episodes together. And you pioneered. you pioneered the coffee cup strategy. So you take one slow sip from your coffee for about four hours at a time, and that way
4: you don't need to wear the mask. All right, And, and I have to admit, one of the ridiculous things about just sort of the reality of being in the Senate is there's always some jackrabbit... I'm trying to use the polite term. language. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm mellowing my old age, um, who, who will try to snap a picture of you. Mm-hmm. And and they want to catch. And by the way, I love the pictures of the Democratic senators who insist on mask mandates for everyone who take their mask off and are happily sitting on planes, ignoring it. Yeah. But but I will say one defensive strategy on planes I do. So, number one, my mask, which I hope to frame as a relic never to need again, is is a Texas mask that says, come and take it. Yeah. but i'm particularly fond of draping on one ear Mm -hmm. with a coffee cup and i can nurse the heck out of a coffee (laughs) cup that's in case the coffee spills the mask will catch yeah yeah that's exactly right
3: and in that case you actually are saying please come and take it i
4: don't want the mask it's yours now (laughs) go on so okay uh, this but makes me- but the airline CEOs recently wrote a letter to the administration. Almost all the major CEOs saying, "Okay, please get rid of the mask yep. mandate. Enough already." And that may have shifted the dynamic because what happened this afternoon after the decision is several of the major airline CEOs announced, "Okay." We're done, and I'm amazed that your, your, your friend was on the plane, and they're literally announcing, it's like the World <laughs> Series score, take your damn masks off. <laughs> the freedom wins. The freedom
3: wins. So I obviously, we've got a few people to thank. I want to thank YAF, as always, for hosting. I want to thank the Logan family for supporting this lecture series. I want to thank this judge for letting me breathe free again. That's going to amen, be great, Amen. Judge Mizell, Judge, she is great. I love her. You know, you know her. If,
4: if any of y'all are going out in the town, I know nobody at the University of Alabama drinks. Nope. Nope. <laughs> but 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 if I'm not going to suggest beer or tequila or anything, but if you happen to have some seltzer water, mm-hmm. um, lift a toast to Judge Mizell. Yes, she wa- She did great. <laughs>
3: I wish, I wish we didn't need to rely on just one judge to give us our basic freedoms back, but that's the world we're living in. I'll take the win. Yep. And this, this actually is exactly how I feel about a separate, albeit somewhat related, situation on Twitter. I don't like that we need to rely on one eccentric billionaire to bail us out of this censorship nonsense that the leftist ruling class has foisted on us. But I sure am glad he's doing it. Uh, However it's going to work, we need free speech in this country. And if a handful of oligarchs are going to control speech in our republic, then help us, Elon, go on in there and buy out Twitter. So then, Senator, my question to you is, Elon goes in, he tries to buy Twitter. He already has a huge stake, over 9%. He wants to take over the rest of the company, the Twitter board of directors, as I understand it, Uh, pulled a poison pill. They said that they're going to actually crash the value of the shares, so they're going to harm the shareholders, to stop Elon Musk from being able to take over the company because censoring conservatives is more important to them than maintaining the value of of their company.
4: So is it all over? Thankfully, no. All right. Um, Let me say, first of all, this battle right now between Elon Musk and Twitter, I think... It was a funny Freudian
3: slip. (laughs) I didn't actually mean to say that, but... uh, A Freudian slip is where you say one thing but me and your mother, right? uh, (laughs) Is that how that
4: goes? Um, I think it is one of the most important moments for free speech in decades. Uh, This is a testing moment where big tech keeps getting more and more brazen saying, we can control everything you say, we can control everything you hear, we can control everything in your feed, we can control everything you listen, we can silence every view we don't like, we can only amplify the views we like. And suddenly, Elon Musk came in and, and is threatening to tip over the apple cart. And, and, and there are lots of aspects to us. I, I will confess, probably the funniest is the Washington Post which is wholly owned by Jeff Bezos, <laughs> wrote an editorial saying it would be bad for democracy for a rich Silicon Valley billionaire to own a means of communication. Well, they admit it. They say,
3: democracy dies in darkness. That's the motto <laughs> of the Washington they are saying. That's what happened.
4: What's funny is when they wrote it, they meant it as a bad thing. <laughs> it-, it is now their mission statement, more, de- more darkness, kill democracy. <laughs> Look, so, so, so what has happened? Twitter, Elon Musk came in, bought just under 10%. Initially, they offered him a board seat. They said, hey, come join, join the board. And it was very funny seeing these, these Twitter engineers losing their mind that he was <laughs> going to join the board. And then, then suddenly Elon said, wait a second. I think I won't join your board. I think I'll buy you. Because there was a condition.
3: If he joined the board, he couldn't buy more than 15% of the company, which
4: means relatively he has very little power. Yeah, he could stand there and yell. Yeah. And he's like, wait a second. I'm richer than all of you guys. (laughs) Like, you know those electric cars in in the parking lot? I made them. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. By the way, this dude literally launched his car into space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how you know he means business. I, you yeah. know, it's is an unusual guy. I've gotten to know Elon a little bit, and he is uh, – I have not smoked a spliff with him. Not yet. The, 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 that's oh, Joe Rogan You're territory. more of a cigar guy. Uh, I, I, Elon I, I would smoke a cigar with him. I haven't, but, <laughs> but, but Elon, I'll invite you to smoke a cigar anytime. Um, but instead of joining the board, he initially said yes, then he said no. And he put an offer out, and he put an offer for substantially more than Twitter shares were trading, $54 a share. And the Twitter board met in emergency session and decided, holy crap, our shareholders making a 40% 40 profit overnight is really bad. (laughs) We are so committed to censorship, we got to stop it. And so a poison pill, and this is something that really grew up in the 1980s when you had corporate raiders, a poison pill is a mechanism where a board of directors can vote in um, a punitive measure. In this case, if any individual acquires more than 15% of the stock, the other stockholders can buy more stock at a much cheaper price. And so it basically dilutes the stock and makes it much, much more expensive to buy the company. And in this case, it would be every
3: shareholder of Twitter can buy more stock at a discounted price.
4: Except, except Elon Musk. Except for Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it is designed to stop the takeover it's designed to stop people from selling their shares for the higher amount and making the money Mm. but what's interesting so there are a couple of things number one elon tweeted three words love me tender great song a great song i I don't know if he was humming it i don't know if he had blue suede shoes (laughs) but he but he tweeted love me tender which everyone took to suggest that his next step may be to make a tender offer, which is a formal offer to to all Twitter shareholders, presumably at that price or maybe a higher price, uh, to purchase their shares. Now, a tender offer you do through a formal filing with the SEC. That's one potential escalation, Mm. although the tender offer presumably would trigger the poison pill. Secondly, another option he can do that's being widely discussed is he can find a few friends. And, you know, when you're the richest man on planet Earth. You're not hanging around with paupers. You, you can find a few friends. Uh-huh. Um, and if, say, he's got three friends, each of whom acquire 14.9 percent, that math adds up to more than 50 percent but doesn't trigger the poison pill. mm So that's one possibility. I know there's been speculation Peter Thiel might join him. Some private equity funds might join him. But if he had a coalition that buys Twitter, that could get to the same place. You could also see lawsuits because one of the amazing things, the Twitter board of directors other than Jack Dorsey, who's leaving the board of directors. And by the way, the guy really does look like a billy goat under a, under a bridge. Hipster Rasputin, I call him. Yep. Like, it's one thing yeah. to grow a beard down to your knees, but like to never
3: comb it? Like, it's really weird. <laughs> it's kind of odd, Eastern Orthodox, Silicon Valley yeah, style. It, it, yeah, it
4: is. I, I, uh, it, it's unusual. Mm. I, I met him, but when I met him, he had a soul patch. That's how yeah. long ago it's been. Um, <laughs> that's actually true. Um but other than Dorsey, almost none of the members of the board of Twitter own any significant stock. Well, this is something that's pretty strange.
3: If you look at the board, and Dorsey is now leaving the board of the company that he co-founded, the amount of Twitter that these board members actually own is minuscule. It's barely anything at all. And, and this is the other point with Elon. So I hope that the Elon Musk takeover works. I want more Babylon B tweets. I want Charlie Kirk to get back on. And really... I need the Trump tweets. I need yes, more. We all yes, yes, yes. Need, we need them. Tr- it's, the, it's one of the main reasons. So, so I want it to work. I want it to work. But even if it doesn't work, one of the things that Elon has already accomplished is he has exposed very serious corruption at Twitter, which is just one of the big tech companies. It's actually the smallest one. It never occurred to me to think, wait, d- who owns Twitter BlackRock
4: owns a lot of Twitter. Look, the giant funds. And to see Wall Street rush in and say, no, we want to keep the censorship going. Yeah. Uh, To see a Saudi prince come in and say, no, 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 no. No free speech allowed. Like, what the hell? Wait, since when does Saudi Arabia get to dictate free speech in America? And it is. So the Twitter board of directors just brazenly screws their shareholders. Just says, we like our power more. Now. Twitter is incorporated as a Delaware corporation. A whole bunch of companies in America are incorporated in Delaware. It has corporate law that is very well developed, and, and there's a standard. The general standard, if a shareholder sues the board of directors, is what's called the business judgment rule. Okay. And it means, as a general matter, there's a high degree of deference to the decision either the, shareholder, the board of directors makes or the company officers make. But there's an exception, a case called the Revlon case that is, in the context of a hostile takeover, if it becomes clear that the company is going to be sold, Hmm. then the board of directors can't just act to protect their own rear ends and keep their own jobs. They have a duty to the shareholders to maximize the price, to get the highest price for the shareholders. So one of the things that may flow out of this is a whole bunch of lawsuits. And, you know, it's striking. One um, One of the board members of Twitter... Uh, is Bob Zellick. Bob Zellick was the head of the, the U.S. trade representative under George W. Bush, is I think the lone Republican on the board. And Elon pointed out, although Bob Zellick is is on the board, as, according to the public records, he has never tweeted once in his life. <laughs> Does he even know what the company he, is? <laughs> he, he, he literally, it, it, it's like you're, you're, you're on the board of like a dairy and you've never had a glass of milk. <laughs> like, like it's it's a little bit weird. Yeah, But it is exposing the fundamental corruption that is at stake. And, and you know, I got to say, a lot of folks when it comes to free speech, they, they say, oh, everybody does it. The left does it. The right does it the, w- when it comes to censorship. And that's just not true. <laughs> In practice, that is not what we've seen. You know, nobody, Elon Musk is not saying, I'm going to buy Twitter and silence all the leftists. He's not saying that. It's not, okay, just my side gets to shut up the other side. He's saying let everybody talk. Yeah, Because the fun of Twitter is picking fights with celebrities. So
3: if you got rid of the leftists, I, you, what would be the it point? Would be,
4: it would be unbelievably boring. Yes. Uh, you, you know, uh, it, 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 is, uh, it is also interesting, Michael. There's a similarity, I think, between this fight and the mask mandate. Hmm. In both places, you have private corporations... With monopoly or near monopoly positions, whether it is the airlines, you've got an oligopoly, you only have a handful of major airlines. If you want to get uh, from Houston to Tuscaloosa, unless you're willing to get on a car and drive a long way, you've got a handful of options. Yep. And those companies have exclusive control over how you can get there. On big tech, Twitter itself is not a monopolist, but if you look at big tech collectively, whether Twitter, Facebook, Google, YouTube – those four companies together control a massive amount of discourse. I mean, we're, we're talking
3: about the flow of 90% plus of information around the Internet, which is the public square, which means they're controlling the republic. In a republic, when you speak, when you persuade your fellow citizens, that's how you govern yourself.
4: Well, and all of the, the lefty blue checks for years said... They're a private company. If you don't like it, build your own. And Elon said, all right, I'll buy them. I'll bet I buy my own. And and, and they're losing their minds. I mean, to see these so-called journalists, I don't know if you saw, do you ever watch Morning Joe? As little as possible. Nobody does. I mean, I'm I'm not sure they have a viewer. When I'm going through the
3: airport with my little mask on, then I see Morning Joe.
4: Well, Morning Joe, I, I saw actually a clip on Twitter Of of Mika saying, "Look, if Elon does this, big tech, they'll be able to control what people think. That's our job." (laughs) And she literally, like, "Oops," said the quiet
3: part out loud. Do you Do you know? So there were there was a big fact check of this clip that was going around, and they said, "No, this was manipulated. Actually, the clip is older. It's it's referring to Donald Trump," And, and they thought this was a big dunk, a slam. The same point holds. She's saying that she is supposed to tell people what to think. Yep. And, and so what we're seeing here is finally someone stepping up and saying, no, we're going to crack this, mon- this monopoly or oligopoly of power that is censoring half of the country, which it deems deplorable and irredeemable. The corruption run deeps- runs deep. We're going to expose it. We're going to air it out. And we're going to have a free exchange of ideas. Now, speaking of a free exchange of ideas, I know we have lots of brilliant insightful alabama students in this room should we open up to some q a absolutely so let's bring out our friend liz wheeler while liz comes out head on over subscribe to verdict the verdict youtube channel the verdict audio podcast the verdict i don't know myspace aol instant messenger we got all sorts of stuff Uh, make sure you head on over and subscribe liz do we have any questions from our verdict plus members
2: we do we do we have questions from verdict plus we're excited to hear questions from anybody in the audience if you are a leftist if you have a challenging question maybe a question that dissents from the viewpoints up here you can come to the front of the line Um, are we ready i'm ready let's Let's go Let's take some questions
3: hey thank y'all so much for coming out uh we i really appreciate it so uh a lot of us are students and some of us are going to be graduating and leaving here in a couple weeks um and i was wondering uh you know going into a job um, how would you recommend that we, you know, continue to fight for what we believe in and for conservative values uh, without running the risk of, you know, losing our livelihoods?
4: Look, it's a great question and it's a hard question because the censorship regime is not just big tech and it's not just universities. It's becoming more and more in the corporate world as well. What what I would say is be a happy warrior. Uh, speak with your friends and colleagues, not angry, not in your face, but 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 just speak. Uh, you, you know, something like the mask mandate. Just about everyone knows how silly this is. Uh, we've seen in COVID, arbitrary rules shut down, schools shut down. And, and and most people in the quiet, you know, SNL did a skit recently yeah. uh, of a <laughs> bunch of liberals sitting around the table going, oh, do masks work? Oh, no, 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 I'm not allowed to say that. <laughs> and so what I would say is just Speak the truth, but don't, you don't have to be in your face and angry about it. Um, and that's powerful. Michael? I think there's a real risk you run. I agree
3: with everything you said, Senator. There is a risk of a certain putting off your courage until tomorrow. So you, you often hear this from students. They say, should I speak up in class? Or should I keep my head down and then later on I'll speak up? I'll voice my opinions. When? When you're getting a paycheck and you have rent to pay? Is that when you're going to speak? Well, okay, maybe I'll get my first job. It's entry level, though. Maybe when I get a promotion... Uh, so, so when you're married and you have kids and you've got an even higher salary, that's when you... No, okay, you're right, Michael. Uh, maybe when I make partner, when I make partner and I've got my mortgage payment and i got to put my kids through college and i got to do this, that, and the other thing, then I'm going to speak my mind. No, you're not. The incentives are only working against you. It's only going to get harder. So the question is, what is your integrity worth to you? virtue is a habit. You got to practice it, just like vice is a habit. So courage is a virtue. It's the prerequisite for all of the other virtues. I'm totally with Senator Cruz. You don't need to be a jerk about it. You don't need to be flamboyant w- w- shooting off fireworks at the water cooler, but you can stand your ground and speak your mind. If you're not going to do it today,
4: you're probably just not going to do it. Well, and let me underscore something also, which is if you look at the left, what's turned corporate America so hard left in recent years? Uh, you know, I remember about 10 years ago, there was the whole political correct movement that, that, that started in campuses 20, 10 to 20 years ago. And at the time, a lot of us kind of laughed at us and said, this is silly, but this is harmless. When people graduate and have to get jobs, they'll put that silliness behind them. Well, what happened is a lot of the leftists who were 21 and 22, they went and got jobs and now they're 28 or 30 or 32 and they're the young, woke army in corporations and the amazing thing is the CEOs are terrified of them. <laughs> it's the most backwards thing in the world, uh, the degree to which the the students who graduated a decade now ago are terrorizing corporate America. And so what I would say is 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 just to underscore what Michael said, don't be silent, but do it with a smile. yep yeah. yep. There's That's an right.
2: element of practicality to it as well that that requires some self-reflection if you know what your line is the line that you're willing to or the line that you're not willing to cross meaning there might be some liberal issue that you know you just can't stay quiet um, anymore. If, if you have reflected on that yourself and you know what your line is on various issues, then you don't have to feel that every day you have to be a dissenter, every day you have to be the agitator. You know exactly what the most important issues are and you've sort of pre-planned, well, if it's this issue and it gets to this point, this is when I'm going to talk to my colleagues, or this issue and this point, I'm going to take it up the corporate ladder. And then it's a little bit more organized and a little bit less emotional, too.
6: Thanks.
7: Hold it, or? All right. Uh, Senator Cruz, something that routinely surprises me about US politicians, especially conservatives, is their support for Guantanamo Bay, Uh um, considering that of the 37 who are still imprisoned there, the vast majority have never been convicted with anything or charged, um, and 17 are being held indefinitely with no plans for transfer. Um, And these people are routinely being denied the regular due process that we ordinarily afford people Um, Additionally, some of the methods of interrogation include rectal feeding and um, waterboarding, and in one case, one prisoner claimed that he was used as a training dummy by the CIA and that he suffered brain damage. Um, I guess my question is, how can America claim certain ideals while also maintaining that it has to have these facilities open?
4: Well, because there are enemies who hate us. And the U.S. Constitution applies to Americans in America. It doesn't apply to terrorists, to enemy terrorists in foreign countries that are trying to kill us. (laughs) On September 11, 2001, I I still remember where I was. I was in Washington, D.C. Uh, We lived less than a mile from the Pentagon. My wife, Heidi, was working at the White House at the time. Uh, we lost a very good friend of ours who was in the plane that flew into the Pentagon uh, in, in the most horrific act of terrorism in United States history. Um, that act of warfare came from an ideology. Uh, radical Islamic terrorism that wages jihad on America. And, and we went and waged war, and you say, well, gosh, we didn't provide due process to them. Well, you know what? When we send a fighter jet over to Afghanistan and we identify uh, people who are al-Qaeda or in later manifestations ISIS, al-Nusra, their whole series of radical Islamic terrorist organizations and we fire missiles at them and blow them up, they don't get due process either. Warfare uh, is a dangerous process. If you look at Guantanamo Bay, it is explicitly outside of U.S. jurisdiction, the reason we've housed them there is so that the federal courts would not place them under their scrutiny. Now, now, that being said, the federal courts have asserted considerable authority over Guantanamo, even though it was a foreign jurisdiction. And, and you noted enhanced uh, interrogation. I, I, I will say it is U.S. law. Uh, it is U.S. policy now under both Republicans and Democrats that we do not torture people. Uh, and so the example you gave of, of, of using that individual as, as a, a dummy and beating him, if that happened, that was a violation of law and anyone who did so would be prosecuted. Uh, we don't torture them, but we do keep them uh, incapacitated. The people who are there uh, are the very worst of the worst. And if you look at the history of releasing terrorists... Barack Obama released a significant number of terrorists from Guantanamo Bay. Um, Joe Biden released a significant number of terrorists, particularly from Afghanistan. And we release them and they turn around and a large percentage of them come back and attack us again. You remember the guy who who blew up and murdered 13 servicemen and women in Afghanistan? That man had been imprisoned at Bagram. Bagram. And when Biden abandoned the Bagram Airfield, he was released and turned around and murdered 13 servicemen and women. So why shouldn't we close Guantanamo Bay? Because I don't want terrorists to murder Americans. You know, just to add, I uh, agree with that. And to
3: add a little bit of context, you mentioned waterboarding as an example of, of torture. Uh, Waterboarding is not torture. Uh, We waterboard our own troops in training, so unless we're torturing our own troops, I guess we'll have a lot of lawsuits on our hands in that case. I don't think that quite counts. Uh, But furthermore, one of the arguments against enhanced interrogation or even against torture is that we have agreed in international law to afford certain courtesies to enemy combatants who abide by the laws of war. Uh, Now some people have argued that we should extend these courtesies even to terrorists. This is a very, very bad idea. The reason that we extend these courtesies to certain enemy combatants is so that we can protect civilians. So we say you need to wear a uniform, you need to not target civilians to achieve your political goals. So if we extend those same courtesies to terrorists who very directly are targeting civilians to achieve political goals, we undermine the entire purpose of those protections in the first place. So to borrow a line from my friend Andrew Clavin I think that waterboarding jihadis should be an Olympic sport and
4: I don't think there's anything wrong with it (laughs) but I will say notwithstanding your and Andrew Clavin's view it is currently against US law so we're not doing so right (laughs) now
7: sorry just with all due respect um, my question wasn't entirely about releasing prisoners I know you brought that up it also, um, it was mostly, to address the waterboarding thing, we know that the studies suggest that torture doesn't work. I would just like to clarify, um, or enhanced interrogation, sorry. Um, my question was not about obviously releasing these people, that's a horrible consequence, what happened, um, obviously. Um, it was mostly about humane treatment.
4: So listen, and I agree we should provide humane treatment, and it's one of the things America does that is different. It's why U.S. law prohibits torture, and I'm glad you say that, that, that you agree that these folks shouldn't be released. I can tell you over the last decade, I have repeatedly forced votes on whether or not we should release people out of Guantanamo. And Joe Biden and the Democrats are pressing to do so. When we have votes on this, they vote party line, uh, I think we are likely to see an effort from the Biden administration to shut Guantanamo Bay down, and if that happens, or or not to shut the base down, but to release the prisoners to shut the detention facility down, if that happens, I believe the result of that will be that Americans will die because those terrorists will go back and commit more terrorist attacks against us.
2: Thank you for your question. Thank you. Our next question. Our next question, I'm going to cut you in the line for just one second. Our next question is actually from a member of the Verdict Plus community. As you know, if you want exclusive access to Senator Cruz asking questions not just on stage at these events, you can join us at verdictwithtedcruz.com plus. If you use the access code live, you can get your first month free on an annual subscription. And you too might get to jump in line um, and ask a question at one of these events. So our question tonight is from Cracklin. And this is a good question, I think. Cracklin says, do you think it's appropriate to call someone a groomer if they're trying to teach sexual material to young children?
4: Um, I think as a general matter, people ought to ratchet their rhetoric down. Uh, listen, there are predators. There are predators that target kids. There are predators who commit horrific acts. Um, I spent five and a half years as Solicitor General of Texas. I handled a lot of cases of people who committed horrific, horrific crimes on little kids. Uh, There is also an effort from the left to sexualize everything, all of the uproar over the Florida bill. The Florida bill says you shouldn't be teaching kids pre-K through third grade about sex. Now, I think that is obviously right. A a kid in pre-K is four years old. I'm not interested in a kid in pre-K learning about Gay sex, straight sex, or anything else, I want them to learn about playing with blocks and how to count. <laughs> um, and so, listen, some of the language saying, all right, anyone trying to push their ideology as a groomer, I think that's probably, um, that rhetoric escalates things a bit. I, now, are there people who are groomers who are actually pedophiles targeting kids? Yes. But but I wouldn't use that, that that accusation lightly because I would reserve it for people who actually have direct ill intent targeted at kids.
2: So basically, if the result of the indoctrination um, in the in these sexual materials is political gratification versus sexual gratification, then you would you would make that distinction with the term. Yeah,
4: look, that, that's a, that's a good point, and and I, I like the way you phrased it. I I think there are people who are misguided. Trying to drive you know Disney stepping in saying, you know in every episode now they're going to have you know uh, you know Mickey and Pluto going at it, like <laughs> really thank you for that image senator you know, that, no, but it's, it's just like, come on, guys, like, like these are kids and and you know y- you can always shift to Cinemax if you want that, like like why do you have? It used to be, look, I'm a dad. Like, you used to be able to put your kids on the Disney Channel and be like, all right, something innocuous will happen. And, and you've got these, like, you know, I don't know, woke lefties that yeah. want to make it their political agenda. I just wish they'd leave their political agenda out of it. That being said, so I disagree with their political agenda. I think it's wrong, and I think it's harmful. But I do think it is different from actual sexual predators that are trying to violate children. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't conflate the two. I would say I disagree with both of them, but the latter is a serious criminal offense that you should go to jail for a long, long time. The former is just misguided and you should be made fun of.
2: And what's interesting is that that yeah, well yes, of course. What's interesting is that parents on both sides of the aisle feel strongly about this issue. It's not something that it's the right versus the left, Republicans versus Democrats. It's something where, and the surveys from Florida show this that, um, that it's really parents versus this ideology. They feel that their children are being put in a in a pipeline with this with this agenda, that it's not just exposure to a principle or an ideology. Um, in an academic sense that, that they don't want their children to know about, that they feel that their children are being taught um, that something is right when objectively that thing is not right. And it's an, it's an interesting cultural battle in our nation.
4: And, and there's an age and stage question. Yep. Four-year-olds are different from 19-year-olds. Vivek
3: Ramaswamy, our, our friend, has uh, dubbed the bill which the Libs call the Don't Say Gay Bell. He says it's really just the Wait Till Eight bill.
4: You know, after eight, then I guess all bets are off. But it, it, it really was fourth grade. Hey, knock yourself out. You can get into all this stuff in fourth grade. Right. That that seems a little early to me, anyway. But yeah, you're, it is a pretty modest. Like, can we give kids just a little bit of quiet until third grade?
2: All right. Well. There's your, there's your answer, and I want to get back to you. You've been waiting very patiently. As always, if you want to ask a question on Verdict Plus, just go to Verdict with slash plus and submit your questions. We do this every week. What's your
5: name? My name is Sam Williams. Um, so I'm a really big fan of both of you guys. Uh, I am conservative, but I do disagree with conservatives on the issue of school choice. Oh. So my aunt, who votes Republican, she's a third grade teacher up in Michigan, and they implemented school choice. And according to her, it was a complete disaster. She was a teacher at one of the best schools in the area, and once it was implemented, there was a major overcrowding issue. Most of the kids who came in were horrible, according to her, and there was a loss of community. What are your thoughts on the issue, and are there any other policies you advocate for in regards to education?
4: So that that's a I- very interesting question. I will say I don't know the specific results in Michigan, and it may be that, that when they implemented it in Michigan, they did it badly. So so your aunt's experience, I, I, I don't doubt that she underwent that. I I can tell you on the issue of school choice, it's an issue I've been involved in 25-30 years. And I think it is the most important education issue and civil rights issue we have in this country. And and let me explain why. Look, school choice is all about giving low-income kids the same ability to choose that that rich and middle-class kids have always had. And I remember 20 years ago we'd have debates about school choice and people would say well if you give low-income kids the ability to get scholarships, the ability to get out of failing schools, the result will be that it'll just destroy the public schools. That is a serious argument. If that were in fact correct, I would oppose school choice. I would have no interest in destroying the, the school system that provides the vast majority of education to kids. We now know, though, because school choice has been implemented in over 30 jurisdictions across the country, the data disprove it. That if you look at, and what I would encourage you is to spend some time studying choice. It may be the program your aunt had experience with was badly designed and and poorly implemented. I can tell you more broadly the data show that when you have choice programs, number one, the kids who exercise choice, who are in a failing school and, and go to another school to another option, They have significantly better test outcomes. They have better reading scores, better math scores, better graduation rates. They get into college at a much higher rate. But number two, and this is critically important, the public school improves. Competition is good. Think about it in every other respect. Um, Competition improves quality. And so it may be in the instance i don't know if michigan did a partial school choice hybrid where they may just have allowed kids in failing schools to get into the top public schools without additional competition it may have been structured so it it was designed to fail that sometimes happens but look i think we ought to have an urgency when it comes to kids trapped and not able to get an education that that, that we have ought to have an urgency that these kids now deserve a better option. And I support every option we can get. Them.
3: I'm sympathetic to the view. I agree with what Senator Cruz just said. I'm sympathetic to the uh, observations of your aunt and perhaps of you as well. I do think the the... Alternative that I would prefer, even to school choice, which I support, is that conservatives just take back the public schools from the libs and kick all the crazy racial and sexual theories out and raise the standards and do a lot better. I would love to be able to wield that kind of political power. You're seeing it in a handful of states. But it is worth pointing out that public education in America was, from the beginning, a leftist endeavor— This is not a a bug of the system. It's actually a feature going back not just 20 years, but going back to John Dewey, going back to Horace Mann. This has been in there from the very beginning. And so I just fear, as a practical matter, I don't think we're going to reform the public education system merely by taking power and changing the curricula. I think we need a a structural change as well, which school choice has provided, which the homeschool movement has provided, which parochial schools have always provided. And, And so simply as a practical matter, living in the real world in 2022, I think that that is our only hope. The alternative is your five-year-old being indoctrinated into transgenderism and critical race theory, and I don't think any of us wants that.
2: And I I think, too, that this idea, and this is building on what Michael says, if, if conservatives are going to retake the public school system, the only way to do that is through school choice, because it's not just a matter of children being caught in a zip code code with a failing school. It's also a way to ideologically hold each and every individual school and school district accountable if enough parents can go to their school district or their principal and say, listen, I'm pulling my child out of this school because you are teaching critical race theory or queer theory, and not only is my child leaving the school, so is my money. If enough parents do that, then the school has a choice. Oh, are we going to adjust our curriculum? Or are we going to become a failing school? Are we going to become obsolete? So it's not just a matter of increasing educational outcomes, which is great. It's also how conservatives can rebalance the public school system.
8: Uh, Hello. My name is Nick, and my question is back to the beginning. You talked about the mask mandate and the potential that the leftists were trying to get people who were thrown off the planes for not wearing the mask added to a no-fly list and that that was something reserved for terrorists. And you yourself referred to the January 6th protesters as terrorists. And so I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on where the First Amendment right to not wear a mask or to demonstrate becomes the you're now a terrorist and can't get on an airplane and if there is any uh, place in American society for people, American citizens who have not been convicted of any crime to have been put onto the no-fly list.
4: So it's, it's a great question and, and, and the simple answer, the, the divide is those who commit acts of violence violate the criminal laws and no one has a right to commit an act of violence. Those who engage in peaceful protests have a right to do so regardless of their their politics. So what I said about January 6th, I was referring to the very limited number of violent individuals who physically assaulted police officers. And if you assault a police officer, I think you ought to be prosecuted, you ought to go to jail for a long time. That is very, very different from the tens of thousands of peaceful protesters that were there on January 6th, that were speaking out, that were singing God bless America, that were standing with President Trump, They were not remotely terrorists and one of the things that is maddening is watching Democrats, watching the corporate media, try to use the criminal conduct of a handful of people who engage in acts of violence to smear the peaceful First Amendment activity of tens of thousands of people in Washington, D.C. on January 6th and of millions of people across the country. And, And, you know, we see this incredible hypocrisy because in the entire preceding year 2020, we saw riots across the country. Antifa and Black Lives, Riot, Black Lives Matter riots across the country. Police cars firebombed, stores looted, people assaulted. And, and we saw the left excusing violent criminals. In fact, going so far, Kamala Harris raised bail money to bail out the violent rioters who are committing acts of violence. In my view, there is a simple dividing line. If you hurt someone else, if you commit an act of violence, you ought to be prosecuted. If you're engaged in speech, whether you and I agree with them or you and I disagree with them, you have a right to engage with in speech protected by the First Amendment.
8: I, I agree with you in that regard, but... Your, the legal definition of terrorism, assaulting a police officer, is not terrorism. Being convicted of assault does not put you on the no-fly list. There are January six protesters who have been convicted of nothing, much less not terrorism, and they are nonetheless on the no-fly list.
4: Well, look, I, I am very concerned about this administration abusing the no-fly list and abusing terrorism, you look at the individuals that have been charged. I I have repeatedly raised with the Biden administration uh, trying to get the the Justice Department to answer questions about who is being charged. What are they being charged with? What are their conditions? Are they in solitary confinement? How long have they been in solitary confinement? How does that punishment compare to other similarly situated defendants? If you look at, for example, and and I've Joined with other senators writing to the Department of Justice. I've asked the Department of Justice. I've asked the FBI these questions What you've got from from this administration is they just utterly stiff-arm Congress They refuse to answer those questions. So when I write the Attorney General He doesn't respond when I ask them at public hearings. He doesn't respond and and one of the challenges the way our democratic process works at this point Republicans are in the minority in both houses of Congress, which means we can raise issues, but we don't have the ability to convene hearings. Without a majority, we don't have the ability to pass legislation right now, but I think the abuse of power of this administration, I agree with you particularly. Look, right after January 6, we saw Washington, D.C. surrounded with, with, with chain link fences, with razor wire atop it, and it looked like Baghdad. And there were thousands of National Guardsmen standing there in camo uniforms holding machine guns with no bullets. They they had no magazines. They were unloaded machine guns. Um, Very quickly, the red state governors realized this is ridiculous. This is not merited by any actual public safety uh, purpose. The red state governors brought the Guardsmen home. So you had, for months, the only guardsmen left were from blue states, from New York and New Jersey and Rhode Island. I'd go talk to these guys. To a person, they were frustrated out of their mind because it was obviously political theater. It was not designed to prevent any real public safety threat. It, It was designed, it was Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer trying to say... Every conservative, every Trump supporter is a terrorist. And I'll tell you, I've heard multiple reports of people, of people who were in D.C. peacefully protesting and finding themselves on the no-fly list. That is an absolute abuse of power. The no-fly list is reserved for violent criminals and people who pose a very acute risk to public safety, not to those exercising their First Amendment rights.
2: All right, next question. Hi, what's your name?
6: Hi, I'm Melissa. Uh, First off, I just want to thank you for coming, not just here, but to any college campus to speak, because it can be a very, very hostile environment for conservatives. And that kind of leads into my question. Um, I'm more left-leaning, and I disagree on plenty of your policies, but we also agree on some other things. And I like to come to conservative events like this and hear you guys' voices, but unfortunately there's been a lot of political censorship, a lot of shameful attempts to to keep people from speaking, especially at college campuses, coming from my side of the political spectrum. And so I'd like to ask your advice of how I could encourage my peers to come out and actually see conservatives and hear you guys' voices instead of relying on a stereotype perpetuated by the media to argue against men, instead?
4: So that is a fabulous question. Let me, let me start by just saying thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of a a civil discussion. You're right, that doesn't happen a lot on college campuses, and and, and it needs to happen. And, And it is important, I think, to listen not just to those you agree with, but to those you disagree with. In many ways, I think you can learn more listening to opposing views rather than people who are just reinforcing what you already think. You know... I'm not sure I know the answer in terms of if you look at the left for a long time, the left embraced free speech. Um, you look at the free speech. One of the seminal Supreme Court decisions on free speech involved a, a anti-war protester who wore a jacket that said "F the draft" and it didn't abbreviate F, and 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 it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, "Okay, that may be one." You know, that, that may be one man's obscenity, but the First Amendment protects his right to say that. Um, I think that's exactly right. That there, there used to be lions of the left who embraced free speech. It is becoming more and more rare, and, and I do think it's important for your voice and for other voices on, on the political left to say, look, if we... All right, I, I don't know your economic views, but, but let's say your economic views are towards bigger government or in the socialist direction. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but hypothetically, let's say you do. If you believe socialism is a good idea, and if you're actually convinced this is a better system that helps people more, then, then one ought to be willing and eager to have that conversation, not just with people who agree with you, but people who disagree with you and look to the facts of, okay what actually lifts people out of poverty? What actually helps people achieve prosperity? And, and I, I do think, so I, I will say one very encouraging sign. So I'm very glad you're here. We were here a week ago uh, at Michael's alma mater at Yale, and it was striking at Yale. Look, Yale is a very left-wing campus. I'd say somewhere between a third to a half of the students leaned politically to the left
3: in not in the school about a hundred and fifty percent in the school leaned yeah. left but <laughs> in the audience that no. night it was about a third to to half. and,
4: and it was so we were talking about uh, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson and and her confirmation and when I mentioned she was confirmed as I said about a third to a half of the crowd began applauding vigorously and I actually stepped back I'm like okay this is fantastic this is fantastic that y'all are here you're listening. I'm not going to presume that you're necessarily persuaded, but to be in a conversation moves us in a positive direction. It was striking afterwards. So Michael and I went um, with, with a friend of Michael's who, who, who is an Orthodox rabbi on campus. And we went and 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 had some scotch and smoked cigars, couple of Coca Colas late into the night. Uh, yeah. No, <laughs> and it was interesting the rabbi's comment in that he said he said this was the first time in decades yeah. that he had seen that many students at Yale sit down and have a civil, positive conversation with conservative ideas, and and he thought it was a really important moment for the campus, and and. I think the more we just talk to each other, the, the, the better it is. One thing I encourage students to do, and this is something I encourage high school students, junior high students to do, pick a podcast or two on the left and a podcast or two on the right and listen to them. Look, obviously I encourage people to listen to this podcast. Um, by the way, listen to this podcast. Um, but it's the sort of thing, as a consumer of news... What is hard right now is, is there's virtually no unbiased news. And, and we live in such a tribalized world that the left listens to left-wing news, the right listens to right-wing news, we don't have shared facts, we don't have conversations together. And at least the way I try to go through that is I try to, rather than pretend any source is unbiased, I try to listen to and read things that are explicitly on the left and explicitly on the right, And usually the truth is somewhere in the middle. So what I would say is your voice engaged on both sides of the aisle, hopefully that becomes contagious. I would be curious,
3: too, just to hear your thoughts on, uh, because I think your diagnosis is obviously right about the left censoring conservatives. I, I I almost don't hear any calls by conservatives to censor the libs. Probably there just aren't enough of us. So so why is it what what makes you different why are you here why are you interested in even if you disagree with us in hearing what we have to say while so many of your fellow left-wingers are not
6: I mean I would say I'm I'm not really interested in some big tribe of people I think we're all individuals and we all have our individual policy beliefs on separate issues you know I certainly agree with you on gun control I'm a big gun rights advocate i believe everybody should be able to own a gun if they want to, because that's your right to protect yourself. And I think having those opinions that kind of differ from people who may share my opinion on health care, for example, really kind of puts into perspective the way that we are treating, and I say we, but I don't really generally want to associate myself with people who try to censor you guys, but the way that leftists try to treat conservatives, and your opinions, having that kind of experience really lends some perspective to why we should give you guys way more respect than we actually do.
3: Well, thank you very much. Thank you.
6: That's a
2: great question. <laughs> while, while we're waiting for this next question, by the way, you guys can use that same promo code live to, uh, to get a good deal, 10% off the merch sorts Verdict with TedCruz.com slash Shop if you want, you know, those those hats with the sweet cactus, maybe for the back of your laptop, a t shirt. Verdict with Ted Cruz.com slash shop, promo code live. What's your name? Hi, thanks for coming.
8: I'm David Bender. Uh, thanks for being here. And so, as uh, Michael, as a fellow conservative Catholic, I was curious why so many pro life conservatives are pro contraception because it seems that pro, uh, Contraception kind of leads to an idea that children are side effects or kind of leads to the idea that you don't have to have kids and uh, kind of seems to lead to the idea that if you are pregnant, then you can get rid of it with an abortion.
3: That's a great point. Uh, I've I've heard cynical people say that life is a fatal sexually transmitted disease, and unfortunately, the way that uh, sexual education is taught, very often we are taught that babies are a kind of disease or a kind of punishment, when in fact babies are the greatest gift from God that you're going to have in this physical world. And... And it's very sad because a, a lot of people uh, will struggle. By the time they wake up to this fact, they, they may struggle to conceive because they're older and they've put things off. Just as a personal note, I've I've got one baby, he's uh, 13, 14 months old. I, I wish I knew the precise number. My wife's going to yell at me when I get home. I guess, <laughs> guess it be 13 months old. And my and I have another baby on the way, and I'm very excited. But the first one didn't happen right away. I thought. You know, this is going to be two seconds. I've been told my whole life, if you look at a girl the wrong way, she's going to get pregnant. And it it didn't happen. I have a number of friends who have put this off and now they're really struggling and they're really upset. And it's a a huge problem that we realize all too late. Uh, To your point on why the pro-life movement doesn't focus on it, I think it doesn't focus on it because of priorities, because political action requires you to prioritize certain things. And on a question such as contraception, there is huge disagreement, even among pro-lifers, even among conservatives. On an issue such as in vitro fertilization, the Catholic view, and a large part of the pro-life movement is opposed to in vitro fertilization, but a lot of people are for it as well. On the issue of abortion, we're all on board. We're all on the same team, and so there might be disagreements and we might believe that certain sides of the pro-life movement don't understand the bioethical implications of certain things, but political action requires that you form coalitions and you fight the battles that are most winnable and most in front of you. And right now we're on the verge of overruling Roe versus Wade. That could be happening within a matter of weeks and a matter of months. And so I think this could be the greatest the greatest development in American politics in my lifetime. And so I, I just think it's, we're going to fight that battle first. And if we can get that win, it will be such a huge victory. We can, uh, hopefully, that major victory will inculcate a culture of life throughout the country. And we can deal with these second and third order questions after that. So, so
4: I will say also, one of the things that I think is interesting and fun about this podcast is, is that Michael and I have often very different views. Um, he is much more of a Burkean conservative. I am much more libertarian. Um, he's a Catholic. I'm a Southern Baptist. So, as a Southern Baptist, you know our views on on the issue of of contraception, we're perfectly fine with it. Um, my view, I I respect the Catholic Church's right to to set its own rules and standards and to have a view on contraception. And I certainly will defend the religious liberty of practicing Catholics to follow those teachings.
3: Unlike the current administration, which sues the Catholics and the nuns and the priests for in any way uh, suggesting that we should, uh, they should follow their own faith.
4: By the way, I will say as a, a, a Southern Baptist uh, that th- th- there is an old line about, do, do you know why it is that, that Southern Baptists are opposed to premarital sex? Why is that? Uh, well, they're afraid it might lead to dancing. It <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can. You've got to watch out for that. But, but you know, look, I, I will say there, there is actually, outside of the theological, you, you can make your own determinations according to your own faith on the question of contraception, but there is an important political and legal distinction, which is whether you believe contraception is a good or bad thing, I, I don't know of anybody arguing it should not be legal. That Not yet. The, no, we haven't gotten there yet. That, 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 look, er, everyone agrees. You know, I remember when I was in college, we literally had uh, condom machines in, in the restroom for 50 cents. <laughs> and so, some of the most fun I had was freshman year when a guy came banging on my door and said, dude, I need 50 cents. Come on, man, I really need 50 cents now. And I said, that, really, why? What's going on? I've got <laughs> Gumball, a dollar. Will maybe, that help? Uh... He's like,
3: man, stop screwing with it. Give me 50 cents right now. This is a slight digression. By the time I got to college, which wasn't all that much later, they were free. They, they actually, in every <laughs> dorm hall, they had them for free. And, uh, but of course, uh, being these kind of nerdy students, it was mostly balloon animals. You know, it was, mo- it was <laughs> not. We got an email from the administration. They said, we know that you people are not having this much sex. Quit, quit taking all the condoms. Yeah.
4: So, thank you.
8: Hey y'all, Michael, Senator, just want to say, roll tide, first of all. <laughs> Senator, before you started, they showed, you a clip, showed us a clip of you talking about the Russian pipeline and how Russia uses it to keep Europe dependent on Russia for energy. I was wondering, what are you doing to keep America independent from any other place for energy through clean nuclear power?
4: So, fantastic question. Um, when it comes to energy, I think American energy independence, it's a question of national security, but it's also a question of prosperity. Um, if you look at economic prosperity, it follows inexpensive, widely available energy. And that's true in the United States. That's true globally. I think we ought to be pursuing an all of the above approach. I think that means nuclear. We ought to get the unnecessary regulations out of the way to developing uh, nuclear power plants. It is clean. It is affordable. It has no emissions. It also means oil, gas, solar, wind, bio, all of the above. But one of the most indefensible policies we've seen the last year under the Biden administration is we've taken a step back on energy independence. We're right now importing energy from the enemies of america american production is down american jobs are down and if you want to know the reason that your gasoline that it costs you 100 bucks or 150 bucks to fill your truck uh it is because the biden administration declared a war on american energy production and this ought to be an issue that brings all of us together as we ought to produce as much energy as possible here to lower the prices and that also is the best for the environment because American energy is much cleaner here than, than is than is energy produced abroad.
5: Oop. Hello, my name is Jake. I'm someone on the left side of the aisle, but I'm very open-minded and willing to entertain conversations with anyone. I have noticed that social media censorship affects progressive users on a similar level with conservatives, and it seems that Twitter has no problem keeping the status quo and censoring people that question authority. Have you ever considered reaching out to populist politicians on the other side of the aisle to try to figure out a common solution about free speech with big tech?
4: So it's a great question, and I will say you're very open-minded, and, and, and with a White sock shirt, I, I can see that. And <laughs> as an Astros fan, I, I, I'm open-minded as well. Um, <laughs> uh, look, it ought to be a natural overlap. And, and so, for example, a couple of years ago, Elizabeth Warren uh, bought ads on Facebook saying, Break up Facebook. And Facebook, being morons, uh, blocked her ads and said, we're not going to allow you to run the ads, which was really stupid. Um, and, 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 and she put out a tweet, uh, because Facebook blocked her, saying, you know, this shows how big tech has too much power that they're able to block my ads. I, I did something I very rarely do. I retweeted <laughs> Elizabeth Warren. The one, the one and only time. Uh, and in fact, not only that, I, uh, at the time, Republicans had a majority in the Senate, and I chaired multiple hearings on big tech censorship. I asked Elizabeth to come testify. Um, unfortunately, she declined. Um, and I can tell you from my end, I've tried to reach out to those on the left. Even the, the self-styled populist on the left have not been willing to take on big tech on censorship and and it's you know when we have hearings in the senate on censorship it's almost like ships passing in the night where where many on the right say you censor too much but many on the left are telling them they don't censor enough um and and i mean we've had hearings basically where democrats are are yelling at mark zuckerberg why did you let Trump win in 2016? How could you possibly let anyone speak on that side of the aisle? And i got to tell you, it is not an accidental shift in big tech. There's a document that I discussed in one of these hearings I chaired that Google prepared. It's called The Good Censor. And this is a Google PowerPoint. It's about 50 pages. They made it. And they described how the old view of the Internet was, and this is using their language, the laissez-faire free speech model, in other words, let everyone speak. And then they described how big tech had made a conscious decision towards a different model, and here's what they called it, the European-style censorship model. And Google identified four companies that made that decision, Google, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, which Google wholly owns. This is an explicit decision, and by the way, the paroxysms that we're seeing not only from Twitter, but but from the the media about Elon Musk potentially buying Twitter, show this is a conscious decision. It's not an accidental drift. It is, we will silence views. So what I would encourage, I will say again what I said to the other young lady who was here, thank you for coming, particularly if, if your views are different. Thank you for being part of this conversation. I would love to see people on the left engage, And engage in defense of free speech right now there are too few, there are almost no elected voices on the left that defend free speech. And we've got to find a way to 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 help. You know, one of the real illustrations of that, you know, who's bizarrely become a conservative is Bill Maher. Yeah. Now Bill Maher is not a conservative. No. But Bill Maher is an old school liberal. Which means, among other things, he believes in things like free speech, which in today's upside-down world makes an old-school liberal seem like a conservative. Or Rogan. Rogan is, I think, a great example of what you're talking about. He was was too big to totally
3: kick off of the social media platforms, but they did censor his podcasts when those podcasts contradicted the ruling regime. Uh, Rogan is is a Bernie bro, but because he was threatening the liberal establishment, they really came down pretty hard, and they largely succeeded. It's worth remembering that... We're not saying that any, at least I'm not saying that absolutely anything should be permissible on these platforms. I don't think uh, snuff videos should be allowed, uh, animal torture content, I think that should probably be uh, snuffed out, as it were. I don't think that direct threats should be allowed. I mean, w- there there ha- are limits on these sorts of things, because every society has standards and taboos, every society that there's ever been, and certainly including the United States. So what the left has done is they've they've used an argument sort of for free speech as, as is merely an instrument to upend all of our traditional standards. You have the free speech movement at Berkeley in the 60s. All of a sudden now they're censoring the New York Post from reporting on the Biden family corruption weeks before a presidential election. And so I, I think it is important also for conservatives and just ordinary people to articulate what what our standards are, what our norms are, what our taboos are. Because if we don't do that, if we don't have a substantive vision of politics, then the the right of free speech in the abstract isn't going to mean anything to people who have nothing to say. And all of a sudden, the norms are going to be obscenity is fine, pornography is fine, threats, as long as they're against conservatives are fine, but damaging information about the Bidens, that is beyond limits. And and those are not standards that we want to live under. So we ought to articulate what we really believe.
2: I'd also be curious, and I guess this relates less to members of Congress, although perhaps they should be asked this question too, and more to your peers, leftists on college campus. I'd be interested to hear their answer if you ask them, what are you afraid of if you attend a conservative event? What are are you afraid of if you hear conservative principles? What are you afraid of if you are part of a dialogue with someone who opposes your viewpoints, whether it's on a practical matter, a policy issue, or an ideology? Are you afraid that you're going to be disproven? Are you afraid that conservatives might be correct on something? What is is the fear? Because what's happened on, on campuses, and I guess even earlier in high school and elementary school, is kids are just taught not to have these conversations anymore but I think a lot of them on a personal level would actually enjoy having the conversations would actually um, benefit from the conversations not just by my standards but even in their own beliefs yet they're told by someone else that they're not supposed to do that so I'd be interested in 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 hearing the answer from your peers of what they're afraid of um, just in engaging in those conversations themselves.
4: Thank you.
6: Good evening. I've got a, a two-part question for y'all. The first part is, uh, if you could
4: pass any constitutional amendment, what kind of amendment do you think would do the most good? And the second part is, uh, in your opinion, when would it be appropriate, or how
6: bad would it have to get for a Convention of the States to pass a constitutional amendment?
4: Well, those are great questions and, and they're closely intertwined. I, I would say, and I'm going to cheat a little bit and say it's a tie between two, which is, number one, a Term Limits Amendment, and I am a strong defender of Term Limits. (laughs) I I am the author of a Term Limits Amendment that would limit every senator to two terms, limit every House member to three terms. Um, It is amazing the divide. If you look at it, the overwhelming majority of Americans support Term Limits, the overwhelming majority of Republicans, the overwhelming majority of Independents, even the overwhelming majority of Democrats support term limits. The one group that doesn't support term limits is career politicians in Washington. Uh, and that's true on both sides. All the Democrats in the Senate, I can't get a single Democrat in the Senate to, to support term limits. And I can't get any of the Republicans who've been there a long time to support it. So, so it, is, it is a clear divide. The second amendment that I would, I would also put right side by side with that is a balanced budget amendment. 48 of the 50 states have a balanced budget amendment. I think those two amendments would be the two most important structural amendments for shrinking the power of the federal government. On the question of a convention of the states, so the Constitution provides two different ways of amending the Constitution. One, through amendments proposed by Congress, ratified by the states. Two, through amendments that come out of a convention of the states called for by the states to propose amendments. In my view... If Congress continues stiff-arming the people on term limits and a balanced budget amendment, I think there is more and more growing momentum for a Convention of the States. And I think we are likely to either A, see a Convention of the States, or B, if it gets very, very close, to finally have Congress blink because they're afraid of a Convention of the States and propose those amendments to ratifications. Either one of those would be a better outcome than where we are now. The, the amendment that I would pass actually has to do with your job, Senator. I would
3: overturn the 17th amendment. Mm-hmm. I would pass an amendment to overrule the 17th amendment,
4: which provided for the. So direct you want to bring back prohibition?
3: I want. Yes, yeah, so I want to bring back prohibition. No, what direct election of okay. <laughs> I, I I got really nervous. I, for I'm, the kidding. Constitutional I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You were oh, right. Gosh. I'm just messing. I in. thought. Oh no! Did I? So. <laughs> So the 17th Amendment provides for the direct election of senators, uh, probably not going to be a very popular issue to run on to say we don't want the people to directly elect their senators. But I think it's really important because when you got rid of the, the states electing the senators, the state houses, and, and instead gave it to the people, you basically destroyed any power that the states had in the national government. It went away. I, remember I got to speak to Antonin Scalia as a student. We went up to the Supreme Court. And he said states' rights completely went out the window with the 17th Amendment. And so if you feel that right now we have an increasingly overbearing autocratic sort of federal government, if you feel that now the, the traditional structures of America and, uh, are going away and you feel that we're being governed by Los Angeles and New York and San Francisco and D.C. most of all, then I think it's really important as a structural matter to bring back some role for the states so that my state of Tennessee, Texas, Florida, ordinary states can come and, in and say... Don't and forget v- Alabama. Oh, are we in Alabama right now? A sensible, sta- sensible state like Alabama. I mean, you could name all, a handful of others really sensible states can go in and say, no, Joe Biden, no Washington, D.C., no federal bureaucrats. We're not going to put up with that. I think as a structural matter, we've got to do it. And Senator, I would say, don't worry. I think Texas is still going to be sending you to Washington, D.C.
4: So and look, I think you make a very good point, Michael. And I I would say as an historical matter and theoretical matter, I think what you're saying is very powerful, that the 17th Amendment, it used to be senators were selected by state legislatures. When state legislatures selected senators, it meant that senators came there beholden to those state legislatures and they were not very eager to take away power from the state legislatures because they're the ones that gave them the job and and could take it away from them. When we moved to direct election of senators, it weakened that very important structural limitation on federal power, that very important element of, of federalism. The reason I haven't focused on repealing the 17th Amendment is is that we live in the realm of the politically feasible. (laughs) And and as a practical matter, I think it is next to impossible to convince anyone to give up the franchise, that that once people have the ability to vote on something, they're not going to likely choose to give up that ability to vote on it, which is why, as a theoretical matter, you might be right in the abstract, but I think term limits and balanced budget are actually achievable and can get done, whereas repealing the 17th Amendment, that's never gonna happen. bit of a pipe dream. Yep, I think you're right, I agree.
2: Thank you for your question. This next question will be the last question, so step right up. Hi, what's your name?
3: Hi, my name is Noah.
4: Uh, This question is primarily for you, Mr. Knowles. Uh, I think you would agree that the US was founded on Judeo-Christian values? Sure, yeah. Given, at
3: least in my experience, that the US, especially in younger generations, seems to be drifting away from religion,
8: maybe that's they stop practicing, they've become agnostic or even atheist, do you think it is possible for the US to maintain that set of values without the kind of core base that they were founded on continuing?
3: You've got to practice what you preach or you're not going to be preaching it for very long. It's, It's not going to last very long. Uh, previously, we did have institutions, we had strong families, we had traditions that were able to withstand uh, you know, some wild teenage years and people rebelling against that. Uh, the social structure was still pretty sound and sturdy. That has decayed rapidly, and so you've seen a rapid spike in atheism, you've seen a rapid spike in a loss of faith in America's institutions. That's a, a big problem. Uh, part of it is because... The the libs want to destroy anything that America once stood for and make America into some merely abstract uh, secular utopia. And unfortunately, a lot of conservatives have kind of gone along with it. I, I think it's important to remember that America is the freest country in the history of the world, most tolerant country in the history of the world, the most attractive country in the history of the world. We have three million people a year at this point coming to this country. Largest movement of human beings in recorded history over the past 60 years have come into the United States. So obviously, America is a big, wide-open, tolerant place. But there are limits. The the Declaration of of Independence says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. If you don't believe that there is a creator who has endowed us with certain rights, then you're just not in the American idea. You, you are rejecting the country itself. And so there are limits here. I think of John Locke, John Locke, father of liberalism, one of the most tolerant liberal-minded men in history, in the letter concerning toleration, John Locke said, we've got to tolerate everybody, except for atheists, because those guys can't be trusted at all. You, you have John, John, I don't mean just to beat up on the atheists, but you, you have a John Milton in the area the most famous defense of free speech in the English language. And in it, John Milton says, we need free speech for everybody, except for the atheists and the Catholics. Now look, I'm glad that we've gotten rid of that that latter one, uh, but uh, otherwise I wouldn't be sitting here tonight. But, but the point that they're both making is that political communities do require limits. We have to agree on certain things. It's become very fashionable since the early 1990s. It's actually a line from former Vice President Dan Quayle to say that diversity is our strength by which is meant, you, you know, we don't hate people based on their race or their background. But Unity is our strength as well. The idea that we can all come together from various backgrounds and agree on certain things and speak the same language and have shared customs and have real borders and have a, a community. And, and, and so we need to get back to that. We need to get back to an idea that out of many, there is one. There is one country. There is one political community. We have a, a broadly shared set of values and we're willing not merely to look at politics as a matter of rights and entitlement, but as a matter of duty and obligation to our fellow citizens and, and to our country. If we can return to that, even if we're not uh, totally up on the theological points that the founding fathers might have believed in, I think that there's a, a good chance that in practice we'll be able to recover something like the traditional American way of life. But if we don't practice it, we're sunk.
4: So, and let me uh, add a couple of things to that. I, I, I think America was indisputably built on Judeo-Christian traditions. Uh, I think we're a pluralist, pluralistic nation, so we welcome people from multiple different faith traditions, but you're right, e pluribus unum means out of many, one, that we came together to be one America. And, and, and I will say that, that those who believe in unlimited power are inherently hostile to faith. Uh, you can look at this in totalitarian regimes across the globe. You can look at this in China, where, where Mao would drive nails into the eyes of Christians. You, you, you can look at this in the Soviet Union. I can tell you in Cuba. Uh, so my grandmother, my father was born in Cuba, r- raised in Cuba, but my grandmother was a school teacher in Cuba. She was a sixth grade teacher in Cuba. And when Castro took over, a story my grandmother told me is is that Castro's soldiers would go to the kindergartens and first grades and tell all the children there, they'd say, okay, close your eyes and pray to God and ask God for candy. And all the little kids would close their eyes and they'd pray, they'd open their eyes and there was no candy. And then the soldiers would say, okay, do it again, close your eyes and pray to Fidel Castro for candy. And they'd close their eyes and the soldiers would put candy on the desks of every child. And if you believe in the totalitarian state, you don't want anyone to have a loyalty to anything above the state. That means a loyalty to God, that means a loyalty to family, that, that, that means a loyalty to anything other than the all, all-powerful government. And so I think you know, I can say as, as a parent, all of us make our own faith decisions, but, but what I urge my children is that your life is much richer, your life is much fuller uh, as a Christian uh, in, with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That, 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 that gives you a strength and a comfort and a peace to withstand the travails of day to day and And, as our nation becomes more and more irreligious, re- rejecting faith of any kind, you you also see a dissent, uh, a, a loss of family, a loss of morals, a breakdown of the nuclear family, a breakdown, a loss of fathers. If you look at inner cities and and, and many of the challenges, that, that, that so many kids are facing, the absence of fathers, is, is, is a big challenge um, and, and a strong faith tradition helps keep families together, helps keep mothers and fathers together to raise children, helps build strong communities, obviously build strong churches, but it is part of what has made America so extraordinary. And I think one of the reasons the secular left have become almost jihadists about politics, about the environment, for some the environment is their new religion, for others it is stopping the evils of Trumpism, but it is with the same zealotry that for millennia people approached faith that now the hard left approaches anyone who disagrees well this is as the political philosopher bob dylan put it
3: everybody's got to serve somebody. And so man is a religious being. We have these longings. We have an intuition that there's something beyond this world. We have an intuition that there's such a thing as, say, morality. It's better to feed a baby than to kick a puppy. If, we, if that's true, then that means there is a good and a bad and an ultimate good. And so we have that longing, and either we're going to order that toward God, the true source of goodness, the true source of being, or we're going to order it toward whatever the idol of the day is, And things don't go very well when you worship idols. It didn't work out very well for other civilizations. And and when when John Adams says the Constitution's built for a moral and religious people, he's not being a Bible thumper, okay? John Adams was far from a Bible thumper, okay? He's observing a political fact. If the the country strays from what is good and true and beautiful, then we're going to have a country that is bad and false and wicked. And I don't think anybody wants that. All right. Is that our show? So, thank you so much for being here. It's such a great pleasure to be breathing the sweet air of freedom, not only because we can take those stupid masks off, but because we're here in Alabama. Thank you so much to everyone here. And,
4: Michael, before we go, I need to say something that is going to get me in trouble with every Longhorn, every Aggie, every every resident of the state of Texas, which is roll Roll time, and it's great to be here. God
0: bless you.
5: This episode of Verdict with Ted Cruz is being brought to you by Jobs, Freedom and Security Pack, a political action committee dedicated to supporting conservative causes, organizations and candidates across the country. In 2022, Jobs, Freedom and Security Pack plans to donate to conservative candidates running for Congress and help the Republican Party across the nation.
0: I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States.